So this fellow comes to the psychiatrist and he says, Doctor, I'm sad. No matter what I do, no matter where I go, can't get over this bleak feeling. I'm sad. <coughs> so the psychiatrist says, you know, I could take your money. I could have you visit me many, many times, but I'm going to share with you a secret. I'm going to tell you something. I'll tell you the truth. There's a clown named Pagliacci. He's the master of all clowns. Nobody can watch Pagliacci without becoming joyful. And it happens, it just so happens, that today the circus is in town. Pagliacci is here, he's in town. Take my recommendation, says the doctor. Go see Pagliacci. And the fellow says, doctor, I'm Pagliacci. <laughs> okay. So if we want to talk about the difference between the popular or the fashionable or the, the world's view of joy compared to the Torah view, the Jewish view, I think a good way to start would be to contrast two major points of difference between the way the world, or much of the world, or society around us views joy, and the way that Torah views joy. And I'll just tell you right up front what those two major points of difference, as, as I understand them, are. One of them is, is joy a means or an end? Is joy a means or an end? Is it the path to the destination or is it the destination? That's one very important distinction. The other one, again, as I understand it, according to my studies, is, is joy a right or an obligation? Am I entitled to happiness or am I obligated to be happy? You're going to be happy whether you like it or not. And in these two points, I think you really see how vastly different the popular view of joy is compared to the Torah view of joy. And um, I think also it gives us a good starting point to discuss how joy is achieved from a Jewish perspective, how to actually achieve it. So let's start with the first one. Remember the first point. Is joy a means or an end? Yeah? Okay. Is it the path or is it the goal? In society around us today, how do you think most people define joy? Hmm? Goal. The goal. Well, yeah, I, I agree. If you ask them, what are they trying to accomplish? What are you trying to, why did you do that? I'm trying to be happy. I want to be happy. 
as if happiness is the goal. As if happiness has some intrinsic value. Because after all, if that's the goal, if that's what you're trying to achieve, then it must have intrinsic value. Torah, on the other hand, is very different. The, the book of Tanya, the book of Tanya, which was written by the first Rebbe of Chabad, Rebbe Shner Zalman, who we call the Alter Rebbe. The book of Tanya talks about joy. There's actually several chapters devoted just to the topic of attaining and maintaining joy. And the way that set of chapters is introduced, chapter 26 is the first of those chapters, it, it gives us a metaphor. It's actually a sports metaphor. The metaphor is of a wrestler, a competitive athlete. Happens to be in this, he's a, it's a wrestler. I guess the, the idea is this, the one-on-one -on -one competition. So it says that there is a wrestler. And he's wrestling with an, with an opponent who is inferior to him. And yet, because of his mood, this wrestler, you know, on the way to the wrestling meet, he was walking out the door, and his wife asked him, did you take out the garbage? And he says, oh, I forgot to take out the garbage. And she says, you never take out the garbage, and you never remember anything, and you're inconsiderate. Uh, I, by the way, the Alta Rebbe doesn't say this in chapter 26 of Tanya, but I'm, I'm filling it, I'm making it realistic, I'm making it plausible. Okay, and then he shows up to the wrestling meet and his trainer sees that he's, you know, down in the mouth. And then he goes to wrestle with his opponent and he loses. He could have won, he should have won. He was the superior opponent, but he was in a bad mood. He was feeling down and he lost. The Altareb in Tanya says, this is a metaphor for us. Each one of us is engaged in a struggle. Our higher selves, our soul, our godly soul, our selfless or altruistic self, the one that just wants to be at one with everyone and everything, to surrender to the will of, of the one, you know, that, that, that higher self. That's the one that wants us to live in a, in a way that is just an extension of, of our maker's will for us. It's engaged in a struggle with our lower self. The lower self is the animalistic or survival impulse. That's me, 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 abject selfishness. It's not evil, it's not trying to do anything wrong, but if I have to hurt people in order to get comfortable, I'm sorry, that's what I'm gonna do, right? That's the lower self, the animal self. And they're engaged in a struggle. Now, technically, you should be able to win that struggle. You should be able to win that struggle. The problem is, when emotionally you're feeling down and you're not in your place of joy, I mean your emotional place, it's not a physical place, you're not in that state of joy, what happens is you get defeated. Just like the wrestler, he was depressed and so he got defeated. Therefore. What is the advice that's given? You have to purge yourself of any negativity, of worry, anxiety, and you have to find that joy, 
Now, how to find is a different discussion, but let's begin with the idea. And you have to find that joy, and then when you're in a state of joy, you know, everything you do when you're happy, you do it better. When you are happy, you perform on a level of excellence. So too, when you're struggling, when you're engaged in the internal conflict of the higher self over the lower self, you're going to do it better when you're joyful. So this is what the Alta Rebbe says. You got to find your joy, because if not, you're going to lose to an inferior opponent. You're going to let that lower self, that ego, run your life, waste your life, make you do stuff that wasn't really what your soul was sent here for. So in order to make sure that you do spend your life doing the stuff that your soul was sent here for, you better find your joy. So let me ask you, the way it's presented there, does joy sound like the goal or does joy sound like the means to approaching the goal? It's a tool. According to the Torah, joy is a tool. Joy is how I get to the goal. What's the goal? The goal is to serve my maker. The goal is to serve my maker. And there's a general mission that we all have, you know, Every Jew was sent here to keep 613 commandments the best we can. And there's also the individualized goal. Each one of us has our circumstances and our challenges and that which is hard for us. And the tikkun, the correction that each one of us is supposed to make in this lifetime. And, 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 and the divine providence, which arranges various different opportunities and different... Um, again, challenges for each of us. That's the individualized goal. But... Each of us has a mission, has a purpose, has a goal, and which is what God sent us here for. And that's the purpose. That is what I'm trying to achieve. And that has intrinsic value. Joy? Joy isn't an intrinsically valuable endpoint. Joy is the tool that I need in order to make sure that I achieve the goal of living according to my life's purpose. It's interesting, I mean, if you think about it, in society around us, where joy is already the goal, and therefore it justifies everything, right? I'm sorry, I'm not trying to hurt you, but I need to be happy, right? If Joy is the goal. Well, the ends justify the means, right? I got to be happy. I'm sorry. I got to do what makes me happy. That's the way the world around us looks at it. Joy itself is the goal. If you look at joy as the goal, what is that really? In theological terms, that's a form of idolatry. You're worshiping joy. You're deifying joy. You turn joy into a god. What do I mean by that? I mean that God, if I can be philosophical for one moment, if you don't mind a little bit of philosophy, the philosophical term for it is a priori existence. That God is existence without any predecessor. 
So when the five-year-old asks you, but mommy, but daddy, how did God get here? Who made God? And you say, nobody made him. But then how did he get here? Well, he was always just here. That's not just the answer for the five-year-old. That is the answer. That is correct. God was just always here. In fact, that's our best definition. That's as close as we can get with human language to describing God. We can say God is absolute existence. He has no cause. He has no predecessor. Nothing compelled him into existence. His existence just exists. Everything else, in contrast, everything else, there's a cause behind its existence. Its existence is conditional, not absolute. Contingent. Dependent. So only God needs no reason to exist. Only God just is. Or like God said, I am what I am. Papa said it as well, but God said it first. It's good to have a crowd that knows Popeye references. I was on a college campus a few weeks ago, and I mentioned, went over everybody's head. Okay. Popeye references, excellent. So God just is. He just is. Okay. And that's what makes God different than everything else. Everything else has to be created. and has to. In fact, we say it needs to be constantly created. If you say happiness is important, well, why is it, ha why is it important? Well, because it's intrinsically important, because you have to be happy. Which, by the way, is pretty much the discussion you'll have with anybody, your average man or woman on the street, and, and you go out and you, you take a poll and you say, is it important to be happy? And they'll say, yeah, it is. And then you say, why? Well, nobody thought it out that far. They just kind of assumed that, oh, of course, it's, it's, it's axiomatic. Right? Like in mathematics, you have an axiom. An axiom is, is something that just, it's true. You don't have a proof for it. You just have to accept it. It's important to be happy. Why? In other words, another, another way to ask it is, okay, great, you're happy. What are you going to do with your happiness? Uh, what, do you, what am I going to do with it? I, I, I have it. Now I'm, I'm going to have it. It's like, you have a million dollars. What are you going to do with it? Do with it. I don't know. I'm, I have it. I have a million dollars. <laughs> Having a million dollars is for spending a million dollars or investing a million dollars. You do something. You don't just sit on a pile of a million dollars like Scrooge McDuck. See, you like the Popeye? I gave you the Scrooge McDuck. Okay? Um, you have to do something with it. The same thing. Happiness. Okay, you have your happiness. What's your happiness for? What higher... Calling is your happiness serving. And that's where most of society doesn't really have an answer. Why? Because they've idolized happiness. Happiness is important because happiness is important. I got into one of these circular debates once. I was talking to a group of high school girls. And it's not so important, the background, but I was talking about, basically I was talking about humility. And maybe I'll get back to this a little bit later, but I was talking about humility. And one of them, for some reason, actually it's not that uncommon, took humility to be like a negative thing. Um, like low self-esteem, which humility actually isn't low self-esteem. When I'm really humble, somebody once told me, Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. 
Humility is thinking of yourself less. Right? So humility is freedom from self-obsession. I can't have low self-esteem when I'm not obsessing on self, right? Okay, but anyway, I mentioned humility, and, and this group of girls started saying, well, that's not good, you should, have, you should be proud, and because and, if you're too humble, then you'll be a shmata, which you won't, by the way, but I didn't even get into that discussion with them. I didn't even get, because they said something so alarming. They said, if, well, if you're not, they said, if you're humble, if you're too humble, you'll have bad self-esteem. And I challenged them, and I asked them, I said, so? Now, I, I knew I was being provocative. I knew I was being a little bit of a contrarian. But I, I said, so? And they got incensed. They were, they were fear. What do you mean? You'll have bad self-esteem. I said, I heard what you said. And then what? And then what will happen if I don't have self-esteem? But you won't have self-esteem. So to them, it was axiomatic. Self-esteem has this inherent, intrinsic value. You have to have it. What are you going to do with it? I don't have to have an answer to that. I just have to have it. And if I don't have it, there's something very bad, something very wrong. And now we're going to have to do whatever we have to do to get it. What are you going to do with it once you get it? I don't know. Didn't think it out that far. <laughs> That's idolatry. I, it doesn't need a reason. It doesn't need a purpose. It just is. That sounds like you just defined God. Doesn't need an excuse for being here, it just is. That's only God. Everything else in God's creation needs a reason. And the reason, I will understate it by saying usually, but I really mean always, <laughs> the reason why anything exists is in order to serve God, to use it in accordance with the design of its maker like each one of us. We were designed, perfectly designed by our makers for his service. And when we are most ourselves, when we are most seamlessly you know, in the zone and just being true to ourselves, that's when we are being of service to him without obstructing that with the ego. The ego is the E-G-O, the edging God out. <coughs> so when the ego is not in the way, and we're just sort of in the zone, not thinking about ourselves, and just focusing on our mission, just being of service, that's when we are true to ourselves. That's when we are performing according to our function. Now, in order to do that, and that has intrinsic value. Why? Because God has intrinsic value. And therefore, when I make room for God, when I can be an extension of God, that also has intrinsic value. How do I make room for God? How do I allow myself to be that clear conduit, that vehicle? Well, there are various tools, but one of the most powerful tools is joy. When I'm in a state of joy, I'm allowing that power to flow through me. I'm living in accordance with my purpose and my design. But the goal wasn't to be happy. The goal was to live in accordance with my purpose and design. Happiness was the tool that lets me live in accordance with my happiness and my design and not get in my own way.
And you see in this society where happiness is the God, is the idol. Idols. You think idolatry is something that only existed in the ancient world? Idols require sacrifices. How many good people, well-intended people, thoughtful people, sacrifice their own principles or, 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 or those who they love at the altar of this misguided life's mission of achieving happiness. And the, the most sad thing about it, not just that it's theologically flawed and it's theologically wrong, how can they make a God out of happiness? The saddest thing about it is that's not even how you achieve happiness. That's not even how it's done. Viktor Frankl said that, you know, logotherapy, man's search for meaning. He said that happiness is not something that you can pursue. It is something that will ensue when you live meaningfully. So we have a society that pursues happiness as the goal, and it's always eluding them. And they make these sacrifices for this happiness that they'll never catch. Like any idol, like any idol, it never really gives its worshipers what they thought that it would, even when they give up their lives and the lives of those who are most precious to them. And it never really, never really gives you what you thought the bargain was. So that's one major difference. That's one major difference. That in Judaism, in Torah, the goal is serving God, because that's what I was made for. I was made to be useful, as my creator deems usefulness. And when I'm joyful, that's when I'm most flowing. That's when I'm most moving. I'm in the zone, and I'm allowing the power to just move through me. Not getting in my own way. But I'm not pursuing happiness as the goal in and of itself. Okay. That's the first thing. What did we say the second thing was? Second big difference? You remember? If you have a right or an obligation. Right or an obligation. Okay. So this actually, let me segue. Let me segue from the first difference to the second difference. It's a fairly easy um, transition. We're just talking about happiness becomes the intrinsic or inherent goal that, that, that people pursue and make sacrifices uh, for. Um, and they chase it and they chase it and it, it forever eludes them. Um, it's interesting. And, and that I was talking about you know, happiness as the goal. But now I want to bridge it over to happiness as a right or an obligation. They kind of go hand in hand. The thinking of happiness as a goal and thinking of happiness as a right, they kind of go hand in hand. In fact, one place where you see this is in the document, the Declaration of Independence. 
Right? You ever take the eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C., and you see the, yeah, the Smithsonian? It's under glass, and you see the Declaration of Independence. It's interesting. What does it say? You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Again, an axiom. How do you know it's true? It's self-evident. <laughs> you know what that means. That's fancy talk for any smart person knows this. The implication is, if you don't agree with me, you're not so smart, right? Okay. So we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. First of all, I think it's funny that there's a little unknowing a tipping of the cards showing the hand, the pursuit of happiness. You're never going to reach it. You'll chase it. You'll chase it. Okay. But the idea of the right, it's an inalienable right. I have a right. And it goes hand in hand with what I was talking about before, that happiness is the goal. Okay, so that's one part of it. The other part is, and I have a right. I have a right to pursue my goal. So just like people can become really... Um, no, you know, nobody thinks they're bad. Nobody thinks they're the bad guy. That's how arguments happen, right? Because what are you talking about? I'm the victim here. I'm misunderstood. Nobody thinks they're bad. Everyone rationalizes. You know what rationalize, you know, to rationalize? Rational lies. <laughs> the rational lies that you tell yourself, right? Okay, based on a faulty belief system. So the person who's pursuing happiness, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to hurt you, but you got in the way of my happiness. And that, because my happiness is my goal. Now couple that with the other point that, and not just it's a goal. I'm not just, it's not just a goal that like, I'm pursuing this for fun or for sport. No, no, no it's a right. I'm entitled to pursue this goal. Not only it's a right, it's a God-given right. Now it's a holy war. Now it's jihad, because, I'm sorry, no, nothing personal, but you got in between me and my happiness, you're going to get bowled over. That's it. Sorry. I got to do what makes me happy. I have to. It's my right. My God-given right. So now he has this holy, self-righteous indignation. It's a mitzvah already to go and do whatever it takes to make myself happy. Contrast this with the Jewish perspective. Happiness is not a right, it's an obligation. How do we know that happiness isn't a right? I'll tell you simply, because in Judaism there are no rights. There are no rights. We have no rights. I was talking in Texas. And I said, you know in Judaism, there's no right to self-defense. A bunch of guys pulled their guns out. No, I'm joking. They did. <laughs> but <laughs> they almost, they wanted to. They, were, they didn't like it. What are you talking? In Texas, you go down there and say, there's no Judaism. There's no right to self-defense. They got very, very, I knew they would get upset. I didn't let it linger too long. I said, no, there's no right. It's an obligation. What's the difference? A right to self-defense means I've reserved the right that if I want to not let you kill me, I can exercise that option. An obligation to self-defense, as it is in the Torah. The Torah tells if somebody comes to kill you, you have to get up before them and kill them. An obligation to self-defense means, no, 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 nobody's asking you your opinion. It's like putting on tefillin. 
you are obligated to put on tefillin. It's a mitzvah. It's like eating matzah on the night of Pesach. You don't have a right to eat matzah. You have an obligation to eat matzah on the first night of, of Pesach. It's not a right to defend yourself, to protect your life. In fact, what's more, Torah even says to protect other people's lives. Even to protect other people's lives, the, the idea of a, of a roidif, of a pursuer. Right? You're allowed to intervene. Not you're allowed to, you, you're obligated to intervene. So, everything in Torah is obligations. Everything in Torah is obligations, including joy. There's not a right to be happy, there's an obligation to be happy. Now, where, where does it say in Torah, thou shalt be happy? There's an old uh, Hasidic expression that there's a mitzvah that's not really a mitzvah, meaning it's not one of the 613 commandments. You won't find it in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, but it brings you to all of the other mitzvahs, and that is joy. And a mitzvah means an obligation. So joy is the unwritten obligation, which supports all the other obligations. So we have these two ideas. One, is joy a means to an end, or is it the end itself? Society around us says, it's the end, it is the goal. Torah says, no, serving Hashem, living up to your purpose, that's the goal. Joy is a great tool for achieving that, that allows you to achieve it. The other point we're saying, society around us says, I've got a right to be happy. I'm entitled to my happiness. And we say, no, no, you're not entitled to be happy. You have to be happy. Like I was mentioning before, the irony of the popular position is that when you think happiness is the goal and you're pursuing it, you'll never catch it, right? Sort of the irony, the catch-22. The one who sees happiness as a goal will never actually be happy. Remember, I mentioned that a few minutes ago. So I want to also point out the irony in the second point, that as long as happiness is your right, you'll never be happy. What's the opposite? What's the opposite of gratitude? And here's where I want to work back. I mentioned humility earlier, and I said I, I want to get back to it, so here's the place. What's the opposite of gratitude? I'll give you a hint. Humility and gratitude go hand in hand. Gratitude is a feeling. Sometimes they say an attitude, the attitude of gratitude. So what's the opposite attitude? Indifference. Expectations. Rabbi, Rabbi, please. <laughs> of course you know this stuff. We expect it. Rabbi says expectations. I like that. I like that. I heard once, expectations are premeditated resentments. Premeditated resentments. 
Yeah, you want to have a resentment? So first, get an expectation, and then go walking around waiting for someone not to live up to it. And then you'll have your resentment. If you're into that kind of thing, that's what you like. The opposite of the attitude of gratitude is the attitude of discontent. It's never good enough. It's not right. Send it back. Waiter, this is not what I ordered. This is not what I, I didn't ask for this. Except it's not to the waiter in the restaurant. It's to life. It's to life itself. This is not what I signed up for. It's not what I like. This is not to my liking. Entitlement is the presumption that I get to have things the way that I like them. Gratitude is having humility to say, I'll find out what things are supposed to be like. God knows what he's doing. He's creating the world exactly as he wishes every single second. Let me show up and experience whatever it is that the present has to offer. That's gratitude. Gratitude is I'm receptive. I'm allowing reality to come to me. I'm allowing myself to, to, to receive that gift, which is another way of saying living in the, in the here and now. They say every moment is a gift. That's why it's called the present. Okay, it's a little cheesy, but, but it's true. Yeah, it's cheesy, but it's true. Every moment is a gift. That's why it's called the present. So gratitude is the ability to experience reality. Entitlement is a reality rejection. A reality rejection. Now, it doesn't mean I'm delusional. It doesn't mean I don't know what reality is. But it means I'm rejecting it. I'm, I'm, I'm standing on moral ground and I'm saying, God, this is not right. This is not how the world should be. It's not how my life was supposed to be. You got it wrong. My father's a psychologist. He told me a joke when I was about 14 years old. He said, it's true. My, it's not a setup for a joke. My father is a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> and I rebelled and became a rabbi. But, so he told me once, I was about 14, he says, son, what's the difference between psychosis and neurosis? And being 14 years old in my house growing up, I understood that was the setup for a joke. So I said, I don't know, Dad. What is the difference between psychosis and neurosis? So he says to me like this. He says, psychosis is when I think that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Neurosis is when I know 2 plus 2 equals 4 and I can't stand it. <laughs> the opposite of gratitude is I reject 2 plus 2 equals 4. But it's true. I, I, it doesn't matter. I don't like it. I don't like that 2 plus 2 equals 4. So I'm in a mode of reality rejection, which means I'm not showing up for this moment. I'm in my head making judgments of reality, but I'm not out here with you being part of it. That's what comes from entitlement. So I was t telling you the irony, the irony of the one who has a right to be happy will never be happy because there's no better formula for being disgruntled and irritated all the time than to walk around feeling entitled. To walk around with expectations of how things are supposed to be instead of just showing up with an attitude of wonderment and finding out how things are supposed to be by just experiencing the moment. So again, two major differences between the world's view of happiness and our view of happiness. One is, is a means to a goal or is it the goal? The world says it's the goal, and ironically, when you pursue it as the goal, you never catch it. 
The other big difference is, is it a right or is it an obligation? Judaism, everything's, it's all, everything's an obligation. It's all about obligations. And the irony, again, being that those who feel entitled to anything, let alone entitled to happiness, end up feeling disgruntled instead of, you know what they say in nursery school? You get what you get and don't get upset. It's snack time, because otherwise every two-year-old screams, my cracker is the wrong cracker. What are you talking about? I took it out of a box. They're identical. No, this one has like a chip missing from it. This one, okay, right? You get what you get and don't get upset. Okay, now, we have those two things straight, more or less. I want to get into a couple of other ancillary points that are connected to the, the idea of joy. And it's connected to what I was just saying a minute ago about um, the premeditated resentments, you know, the expectation that uh, you know, God is failing me somehow, or my life is failing me, or reality is failing me because it's not, it's not what I want, it's not what I like, not what I asked for. So I want to talk about that a little bit more in depth because there is something there. When somebody says, I don't like this, it's not completely disingenuous. There is some truth to it. I mean, if I say, I don't like the experience of getting caught in traffic and missing an important meeting. Okay, so what are you going to tell me? No, you really do like it. Just be more spiritual. <laughs> well, I, but I don't. I don't like it. Okay. I don't like when somebody I thought was my friend, I find out they're talking behind my back and they don't respect me and they're backstabbing. That hurts me. That's, that's, that's an emotional slap. That hurts. That's emotional pain. Okay. I'm not going to pretend that I like it. So there is something legitimate to saying, I'm not, I don't like this experience. On the other hand, on the other hand, that has nothing to do with my willingness to experience whatever it is that I'm going through. Just because I acknowledge that the experience is painful doesn't mean that I have to reject it. Doesn't mean I have to two plus two equals four and I can't stand it. I can say, I don't like it, it hurts, but it is. And it, and, and, and it, it's my life for this moment, for right now. And let me show up for it and let me experience it fully. And it's also part of the gift. It's also part of my story. How can that be joyous? Because joy has nothing to do with pleasure, just like sadness has nothing to do with pain. This is the rampant misconception of the society around us. They have told us that joy goes together with pleasure and that sadness goes together with pain. That is not true. They are two totally different things. Joy and sadness are emotional states. They are chosen by human beings. They are choices. They are emotional states. They have to do with how you judge have to do, they're all in the mind, they're all intellectual, they're all cerebral. Pleasure and pain are not intellectual. They're not judgments. 
Pleasure and pain are automatic. They're automatic. When you experience pleasure or pain, you're not choosing to feel pleasure or pain. They're sensations. In fact, they're not even feelings. You're not really, you, when I say, I feel hungry, that's not an emotion. I feel cold, that's not an emotion. <coughs> feeling love, feeling compassion, those are real feelings, those are emotions. Feeling gratitude. Those are emotions, but I, I feel hungry, I feel tired, those are sensations. Now I, I can't control them, I'm not in control of them. But they have nothing to do with the emotional states called happiness and sadness. So that I can actually be in pain and feel joy at the exact same time. You ask any marathon runner crossing the finish line, describe your physical state, I'm in pain. Describe your emotional state, I'm joyful. Or a mother giving birth. I hesitate to use that example because I'm obviously borrowing it from someone else. The marathon one, you probably can tell. I'm also borrowing from someone else. But at least I have the ability to train for a marathon. And I do not have the ability to give birth, at least not according to current technology as of today. My point is like this. Animals feel joy and pain. I mean, I mean uh, uh, pleasure and pain. Animals feel pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain are, are, are sensations. They're automatic. You don't even have to think about them. Um, they just happen. Um, but happiness and sadness, that has to do with what's going on up here. That's how you judge what's going on. That's the conclusion you come to. You manufacture that. So I'm not in control of whether or not a sensation is painful or pleasurable. And there's nothing neurotic if I'm in pain. Even emotional pain, because I can't, I, I can't choose it. If somebody backstabs me, it's as hurtful as if they punched me in the face. The fact that it's painful, that's not neurotic. That's just the truth. That's the automatic reaction. That's how the human heart is built. It's a sensation. I feel the pain. Ah, but am I going to get sad about it? That's an emotion. That's a choice based on a conclusion, based on an interpretation, based on a story that I tell myself. You know the difference between pleasure and pain? I'll give you a good illustration. I get up in the morning, three in the morning, and I'm walking across the hallway upstairs where the bedrooms are, and we've got the big fluffy carpet. This is important later for the story, that it's a fluffy carpet. And I'm walking, and my kid was playing Legos earlier in the day. You know I'm going. You're, you're cringing already. You're wincing. You see, Trigger warning, okay. And I'm walking across the carpet and, and there's that moment, you just know you just stepped on a Lego and there's nothing you can do. And it feels like an hour. It's a millisecond, but it feels like an hour. Time stops and you know there's nothing, either. you're gonna feel that pain. And you feel it and you scream out, ow! 
That's pain. That's pain. That's an automatic stimulus response. That's a reflex. There's no judgment. You didn't think about it. You didn't interpret it. There's nothing going on intellectually. It's just, it's neurological. Bam, pain. Now, a second after that, I bury my face in my hands and I say, why does stuff like this always happen to me? That's the suffering. That's self-inflicted. That's the judgment. That's the story I tell myself about the pain. So I can't control the response when I feel the pain. Which again is not a feeling like an emotion, it's a feeling like a sensation, like I feel hungry, I feel tired. But what I get to do is choose my interpretation. So I write a victim script about it. Why does stuff like this always happen to me? Now I'm sad. But I made myself sad. I chose to take the pain stimulus and tell myself a story about how I'm the nebuchadnezzar, how I'm the loser, I'm pathetic, I'm the, the main character in my own tragedy. So here's, here's, here's the news. Pain and pleasure are not the same as joy and sadness. To the extent, like we said before, you can be in pain and be happy. And I didn't mention this, but conversely, it reasons, it's, it's reasonable to say. And we actually know this, who those of us who have experienced it. Have you ever ate the whole cheesecake at 3 in the morning because you thought it would make you feel better? Right? You can be experiencing pleasure and be profoundly sad. So they don't go together. You can be in pain and be happy. And you can be feeling pleasure and be sad. Society told us they're interchangeable. They're the same thing. So what do we do when we're not feeling joy, when we're not happy? We fill ourselves with more and more and more pleasure with this cruel lie that we bought into that there's some amount of pleasure that will someday equate, will amount to Joy, And it's a lie because there's no critical mass. There's no tipping point. There is no amount of pleasure that will ever equal one iota of joy. And conversely, and conversely, not, pe not that people like to hear this, but there's no amount of pain that has to equal sadness. I do not have to choose the emotion of sadness as a response to my pain. So what am I supposed to do? I can humbly acknowledge my pain. I can cry out in pain. I can say, Oi, Tati! It hurts! That's fine. That's 100% fine. Nothing neurotic about that. What I don't want to do is say, Oi, Tate, you're getting it all wrong. You got the wrong guy. It's not supposed to happen to me. This isn't right. This isn't my story. Send it back. 
The attitude of gratitude, humility, is the willingness to show up for every moment of reality, including the painful ones. And when I'm able to do that, I can find the capacity to even feel the emotion of joy while simultaneously experiencing sensations of pain, both physical pain and emotional pain. Is it hard work? Of course it's hard work, but it's absolutely doable. But is it okay to also be sad sometimes? Like if something that, you know, like something that's emotionally painful or uh, tragedy. But that's not being sad. So let's, let's, let's distinguish. Somebody says, well, I suffered a loss. I'm sad. Hold on a second. Are you sad or are you grieving? There's a distinction. Torah talks about an obligation to grieve. God forbid, somebody who loses a close relative. There's an obligation to grieve. Remember, I told you everything in Torah is obligations. Actually, I should restate that. It's not an obligation to grieve because that's an emotional thing and Torah cannot command you to feel something. It's an obligation to behave as one who is grieving. For instance, God forbid, no one should know from it, but the Shiva, the seven days of mourning, there are certain modes of conduct, there are behaviors that are the way someone who is mourning behaves. On Tisha B'Av, on the ninth day of Av, the anniversary of the destruction of the temple, of actually the anniversary of the destruction of both temples, we do the same thing. Collectively, we as a nation are, are grieving, we're in mourning. You behave in a way as one who is mourning, who is grieving. But that's not being sad. You can grieve in joy. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. You're a human being. You have to remember what joy really is. Joy is not a sensation. It's not a body thing. It's not in your nerve endings. It's not something that you got because you were, you were fed a tasty meal. That's not joy. It's not joy. It feels good, but that's not joy. Joy is totally, it comes from the mind, and it goes down to the heart, and nothing around me can stop it, nothing around me can interfere with it. I'll tell you a story. There was a Jew, uh, a Chabad Chassid. And he had a really hard life. His name was Reb Mendel. A lot of, you, know, you meet a lot of Lubavitchers, they'll tell you stories about Reb Mendel Futtafas. He was a Jew who lived in Russia during the really dark days of communist oppression. And he was helping his fellow Jews. He got caught. He was actually helping smuggle people out with fake visas to get them out of Russia. And they put him in a gulag for 14 years. So I was talking to a teacher of mine once, and my teacher said that he was sitting down having breakfast with Reb Mendel one morning. And uh, Reb Mendel told him a story. He said when he was in this gulag, in this prison camp in Siberia, there was another guy there who was a professor. Um, you know, the communists were very suspicious of intellectuals academics. So a lot of the people in the work camp, you know, you had religious Jews or any religious person really, um, academics, 
and then mixed together with like real street thugs, like all mixed together in sort. So this particular conversation, this professor, this academic, who had been sent, you know, he was considered to be anti-revolutionary for whatever reason. You know, there, there's a joke. I don't know if everybody will, will get it. It's sort of like a, a cultural anachronism from the Soviet days. But they, they used to say a joke in, the, in, the, in, in Soviet Russia that KGB always works in groups of threes. Why three? You need one who knows how to write, one who knows how to read, and then a third one to keep his eye on the two intellectuals. Okay, so the communists were very suspicious of intellectuals. So this intellectual, this professor, ends up in this work camp with Reb Mendel Futafas, this Lubavitcher Chassid. And Reb Mendel is telling this story over breakfast years later. And he says, this professor asked me, he said, I've noticed that many of the men are demoralized to the extent that they actually die. He says, healthy men who do not directly die from, from starvation or from disease or from, from, from an act of violence, they simply lose their will to get up off the cot in the morning. And when we come back from our day of slave labor, they're dead. It's interesting, by the way. It's very similar. I mentioned Viktor Frankl earlier. It's very similar to what Frankl observed in Auschwitz. Um, but at any rate, this professor tells it of Mendel, I see that these people, they lose the will to live, and they just, they, they, sooner or later, they die. He says, with you, I see the opposite. You have this joie de vivre, and nothing gets you down. And I can't, in fact, you, you inspire everyone else. I can't put my finger on what's the difference. So that Mendel tells this professor, he says, let me explain something to you. These guys that you're watching, that you see them uh, dropping like flies, they're Cossacks. You know what a Cossack is? I mean, you're talking about real, not refined people, okay? Um, Mendel said, for a Cossack, life is three things. His horse, his rifle, and his bottle of vodka. That's life. Now, when they send them to this gulag, they lose those three things. But that's life for them. So by losing those three things, they've lost their lives. And it's only an inevitability, sooner or later, the body is going to get the memo from the brain, you're dead already. And when that happens, they don't get up off the cot in the morning, and when we come back, they're dead. Because they already lost their lives by coming here. And Mendel says, but you should understand something about me. Really, my life is not so different here than it was at home. Now, the man didn't see his wife and children for 14 years. He, I mean, he was a slave laborer. He was abused. He was beaten. He says, my, my life is not so different. What's my life? He says, like, back at home. I see the sun is about to go down. So you have to pray. You have to, it's mincha. Time for mincha. It's an afternoon prayer. Well, here it's pretty similar. You see the sun's going down. It's the same sun. It's the same type of scenario. It's an afternoon. You have to pray. Mincha. The afternoon prayer. Now, it's a little different because there's no shul, and I can't actually stop chopping wood. They were chopping wood in the forest. He says, because if, uh, if I stop working, they'll shoot you dead. So while I'm doing the work, I silently, I pray the afternoon prayer to myself. And in fact, I think to myself, you know, in all the years since creation, I bet you nobody ever prayed to God standing on this spot. And I think to myself, you know, 
my life's not so different. Back home, I tried my best to serve God. Over here, I try my best to serve God. So what did they take from me? Nothing. Okay, we could be impressed by that story, or we could try to learn from it. What we can learn from it is this. Somebody can take away my pleasure. They can even inflict upon me pain. But they can do nothing. They cannot touch my joy. It's purely, you know, they say happiness is an inside job. Which is why, by the way, the word happiness itself, you see, I favor the word joy. Really, the, the best word, the best word is simcha. Really, all English words fail. But joy is a better translation of simcha than happiness. Happiness actually is not a good word. I try to avoid it as much as I can. Um, because the word happiness is actually the opposite of everything I was just telling you a minute ago about Reb Mendel and about, you know, you make your own joy. What's happiness? Happiness happens. That's the etymology of the word. It happens. It's like an accident. You know, it's, there's a random world, and if things fall into place the way you like it, oh, you're lucky you get to be happy. Happy is totally passive. Happy means I'm a victim. I, happiness means I'm going to go out and have my day, and I'll find out whether or not I'm going to be happy. And if I'm not, if it doesn't go my way, that's called a mishap. Because the whole world's random. It's all happenstance anyways, right? Okay. From the Jewish point of view, God is running the world every single second. So there's nothing random to begin with. It's all meant for you. Every moment of it, like we were talking about before, show up for every moment of it. Every moment is a gift. And it's not, happiness doesn't happen. It's joy, and I'm going to produce it. I'm going to make it. It's a choice. I used to have this bus driver when I was a kid. Looking back at it, I realized the guy was a philosopher. He used to drop us off. Everyone would get off the bus. He would say the same corny line. He'd say, have yourself a great day, unless you got other plans. <laughs> But he nailed it. That's right. That's what joy is. See, joy is I get up in the morning and I already know whether or not I'm going to have a joyous day because I've decided that. Happiness is, I don't know. I'll find out. Let me go check my phone. Oh, no. And you see the first text came in already. You're already a victim. You're already receiving stuff you don't want. And, and so the Mendel's story is, you know, I can't control the pain and the pleasure in my life. Well, let, let, me, let me modify that statement. There's a certain amount of pain and pleasure that I can control. Okay, obviously. If I decide to uh, put my hand in the drawer and close it, you know, that's, I'm inflicting pain on myself. But what I'm saying is there's a certain degree of pain and pleasure that that's God's business. That's God's business. Then there's my emotional reaction to my experiences that's totally my business. So when the sages say, everything is in the hands of heaven except for one's awe of heaven. What does that mean? What's that formulation? It means the way God runs the world, that's his business. My reaction, that's my business. Where does God completely 
stay out. He allows me to decide, to interpret, to assign meaning to my experiences. Hence, I can find meaning even when I'm experiencing pain and thus be joyful. And I can even, unfortunately, but we see it all around us, choose sadness and self-pity and being disgruntled and being resentful while I'm literally bathing in oodles of pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing all types of stimuli that are pleasurable, because I make sure to do so, all the creature comforts, and I'm sad. I'm empty. Okay, so let's, let, let's talk about the formula for it. Let's talk about how we do it. Very simple, it's like this. I want to just, this is recapping, reviewing, summing up. Okay. Two major differences, is happiness a means to an end, or is happiness the end? Society around us says happiness the end has intrinsic value. That's the idol, go worship it, make sacrifices at that altar. We say, God forbid, a life of service, of purpose, of being functional, of doing what I was designed to do, that's the goal. Happiness is a great tool to get me performing on a level of excellence, just like the wrestler, right? The wrestler was in a good mood, and he won. He was in a lousy mood, he lost. So that's the first thing we got to know, is joy is a tool. Second of all, society around us says joy is a right. They're very into their rights. We say, no, it's an obligation, like all mitzvot, all of our life circles around obligations. This also goes hand in hand with the idea that we're not going to be we're not going to feel entitled. We're going to feel grateful. We're going to show up. We're going to find out what's happening. Okay. We mentioned the idea that pain and pleasure are sensations. They are automatic. There's no judgment involved in them. And um, they have nothing to do with happy or sad, or let's use the proper word, joyful or sad, which are choices. So I want to sort of tie it all together for you like this. There's a verse in Psalms, King David. He wrote, you know, Psalms, Tehillim, those, those are lyrics. We read them like poetry, but really they are lyrics. Sort of like another Jewish songwriter who won a Nobel Prize for poetry. I think last year, Bob Dylan won for poetry for his lyrics. Okay. So the Psalms are lyrics. Those are the songs of, of our lives. And, and there's one verse in chapter 100. And we say it every morning. It's part of the morning prayers. And it really encapsulates the whole thing. It's just a formula. And it makes it easy to remember. And you have it all there in one place. It says like this. That's it. That's the whole phrase. That's it. That's the formula. Let's unpack it. And you'll have it. You can apply it. You can you have it for the rest of your life. Like we were talking about it, you know, at the beginning earlier. It's not about amassing knowledge, it's about changing the way you think. Okay. 
It's a very short sentence. If you know any Hebrew, you can help me out. You can help me along here. We're going to diagram this sentence. Remember in, remember in uh, like junior high when you had to diagram sentences? Yeah, okay. What is the subject of this sentence? Sentence is an imperative sentence. Serve God with joy. Subject is you. It's an imperative. You understood. It's speaking to you. Okay? So, first thing is take it personal. This is what God is telling you. Second of all, it's imperative. It's a command. It's not an option. It's not if you want. This is what God is telling you to do. Your maker, who designed you, tells you this is your programming. This is what you're for. Okay. What is the predicate? What's the verb in this sentence? Ivdu which is the word avodah, work, or serve, or function. Do your thing, baby. Do it. Do it. Function. Be productive. And serve. Service means for a cause greater than myself. That's service. Not just self-perpetuating. Not just eating in order to go to work so I can get money to buy food so I can eat so I can go to work. Okay, so that's... That's the predicate. That's the verb. What am I doing? I'm living according to my function to serve a purpose greater than self. All right. What ultimately is the object of all that service? Ivdu es Hashem. So you might know a little bit about Hebrew grammar, but there's that untranslatable word. It's just two letters. Aleph, Tuf, Et, or S. And it's untranslatable. It indicates a direct object. So, ivdu et Hashem besimcha, that two-letter, untranslatable word et, it indicates the direct object. What's the direct object in this sentence? Hashem, God Almighty. That's my goal. So, what am I doing? I'm serving. Whom? My Maker. How? Besimcha. Besimcha is an adverb. Be simcha. Be is the preposition in or with. Simcha is the noun joy. Be simcha means simcha li. Right? Like row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, merrily, merrily. This is simcha li, simcha li, simcha li. <laughs> the adverb is simcha li, joyfully. So here it is in one beautifully constructed line from, from King David's songs. Who's it talking to? Me. What type of a statement is it? It's an imperative statement. It's a command. God is telling me my mission. And he's talking to me. What's my mission? Work. Show up. Do your thing. Be functional. Be productive. For a purpose greater than yourself. Namely, whom? As Hashem, serve God. Serve your maker. How? What's the tool? Be simcha. With joy as your tool. With joy as the means to an end. You will perform on a level of excellence. And you will live according with your design. And you will give your maker what he needs you to give him. And you will live your life the way your life was meant to be lived. And all we have to do is listen to the command. 
just like putting on tefillin, lighting Shabbos candles, <laughs> eating matzah on the first night of Pesach. All we have to do is do what we were told to do, which we were designed to do. We were designed to live productively, to accomplish our life's mission, and to do it through joy. Joy isn't my goal. Serving my maker, living, accordance, living in accordance with my design is my goal. How do I do it? Through joy. Make sense? Simple, right? Simple to understand? Difficult to implement. But eh, now you're on your own.